Ever thought about setting up a website to advance a business idea or share your knowledge? If you don't know where to start, then let's be partners. I'm Jonathan Mosen, and at Mosen Consulting, we work with our clients every step of the way, doing as much or as little as you need us to do. We'll set up a domain name, design a logo, install and configure the website, and then give you a personalized manual written in clear Mosen Consulting style so you can run the website yourself once it's set up. Working closely with you, Mosen Consulting will deliver a website that's accessible, classy, and functional. Contact us and describe the website of your dreams at mosen.org. That's M-O-S-E-N.org. Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Hello there. If you monitor blindness issues via any media, you've probably already heard that the Canadian General Standards Board has drafted a standard on service dog teams. It's causing considerable debate in the blind community in Canada, and I think it's fair to say a great deal of consternation worldwide. Submissions on the draft close on the 14th of July, and it's our feature story on the podcast this week. But I have a couple of things before we get on to that main story. First, let's refer to last week's podcast when we spoke with Chris Danielson from the National Federation of the Blind about a lawsuit it could turn into a class action against Greyhound concerning the accessibility or otherwise of their app and website. We were able to confirm on the blind side that the iOS app is completely inaccessible when you want to book travel with Greyhound. And the website could be challenging depending on your skill level and the technology available to you. The blind side reached out to Greyhound for comment on the story. We hoped to be able to interview someone for that piece. They have sent back a written statement and I'll read it out in full for you. Greyhound, it says, recognizes and embraces the importance of websites and mobile applications to the sight-impaired community and has always made accessibility one of our highest priorities. We're continuing to make big strides in supporting the online and mobile experiences of sight-impaired customers, such as integrating our sight and screen reader technologies in conjunction with user groups from the sight-impaired community. Our goal that we are working towards continuously is to have an amazing experience for all our Greyhound customers. So that's the statement in full from Greyhound. Now let's talk about something that is coming up on the blind side quite soon. There'll be a series of podcasts on the New Zealand general election. We do cover a range of issues. Of course, this week it's Canada. We've covered the United States and Australia in the past. New Zealand is where we're based and New Zealand has a general election coming up in September of this year. To that end, we've reached out to all of the disability issues spokespeople in New Zealand from the political parties contesting the election, inviting them on to the podcast to answer questions about a wide range of disability issues. We hope this will help not just blind people, but disabled people in general in New Zealand to cast an informed vote. We've spread the word on Twitter and Facebook, and we're encouraging people from the wider disability community to submit questions that we can ask the politicians. We're beginning this process at the end of the week. Actually, I'm heading off to Parliament to interview Mojo Mathers, who is the Greens spokesperson on disability issues. We've had indications that we will get interviews with many other key players in the field. So that's exciting. If you have any questions, if you're based in New Zealand and there's something that you would like to ask the disability issues spokespeople, then please let us know. 
We'll try and incorporate as many of those questions into the interviews as possible. You can communicate that by dropping me an email to theblindside at mosen.org. That's theblindside all joined together at mosen.org. Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosen. On Friday, submissions close on a standard that has been drafted by the Canadian General Standards Board, or CGSB. It prescribes with exceptional detail what constitutes a service dog team, including the behaviour and abilities of both members of that team, the human and the dog. Critics of the proposed standard accuse the CGSB of a paternalistic Big Brother-style encroachment into the lives of disabled people and many guide dog handlers are concerned that the proposal seems to take no account of effective self-regulation that has served guide dog handlers and the public well. Some U.S. guide dog schools are suggesting that they may need to decline to provide service to Canadians if this standard is adopted. And if you're outside of Canada and wondering why you should concern yourself with this, well, apart from displaying a sense of solidarity with those whose right to work a perfectly functional and safe guide dog team might be called into question, proponents of the standard in Canada are already talking about the prospect of elevating this to an international standard. Yvonne Peters is a seeing-eye dog handler, a lawyer, and a dedicated activist on disability rights issues. In 2014, she was appointed by the Manitoba government to serve as chairperson of the Board of Commissioners for the Manitoba Human Rights Commission. That mix of skills makes her an ideal person to help explain the content and ramifications of this 61-page document. Yvonne, welcome to The Blind Side. Oh, thank you so much for your interest and for giving uh, me an opportunity to discuss this very critical issue with you. Who is the CGSB and what do they do? Well, there's a good question. I have to say that uh, I know a lot about legislation and standard making, and I had not heard of them before. But they are a federal agency set up under our public works uh, branch of the federal government. And uh, as much as I can uh, glean, they, uh, when they are approached, will they can be approached by private uh, bus- private private industry, private business, or government to set standards uh, in areas of uh, safety and health, environment, economy, and so on. So I, uh, I guess they decided that, you know, uh, service dogs would fit within their mandate, and uh, here they are. Uh, so what, what their standards are not law. They're just proposed as standards, and then the various stakeholders can do what they think is best with them. So if the standards aren't law, why is everybody getting excited? Is, is it the potential of the precedence that the standard could set, that it could be the basis for future legislation? Sure. These are right now, and, and this is an important point, right now these are called draft voluntary standards. Don't be fooled by the word voluntary, because if you read through the document, you will see that they, they are proposing that they could be adopted as law or policy by various jurisdictions. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty right now in Canada, I'm sure elsewhere in the world, uh, about who is a legitimate service dog user and so on. So it's, I think it's pretty easy to see how a policymaker or a legislator could say, well, here's these standards. We don't have to do anything any further work. We'll just adopt them. 
And, and I, want- I, I know that, that here in, uh, in Manitoba, for example, the province of Manitoba, there is already lobbying going on by some trainers that these standards be accepted as the model for the province of Manitoba. So let's take a look at them, and I want to start with the introduction and read part of this because it says the need for the standard arose due to long waiting lists for service dogs and a growing concern that those training the dogs may not have any formal education or experience working with persons with disabilities or their families. These gaps and weaknesses, it continues, prompted many people to train their own dogs, either with or without the assistance of a dog trainer. Further, some people began using online resources to purchase corresponding ID cards and dog vests, even though there is no way to determine if the team is authentic or safe to work together in public spaces. For these reasons, it is extremely difficult for service dog teams to establish their legitimacy within this turbulent environment. So is there a problem with badly trained and even fake service dogs in Canada? And if there is, does that problem include some teams calling themselves guide dog teams at the moment? Well, this is a really important point, and one of the points I want to make in my submission. Where is the evidence for the need for these standards? What is this turbulent time that we are in? There's no real evidence uh, supporting that. We do know that there are, from time to time, uh, fake service dog or people who you know hold their dogs out as service dogs and they're not but certainly you know i work in the area of human rights and i'm pretty much aware fed you know at the federal level the provincial level i i know there are some issues but certainly not it's it's not a chronic issue it's not a huge issue it's one that i think could be well addressed by uh good public education and you know some some intervention in that regard, maybe some penalties for falsely, um, you know, suggesting that your dog is a service dog. In terms of guide dogs, I have to say I have never heard of somebody pretending that their dog was a guide dog. I think anybody observing it would be pretty obvious, pretty hard for sighted people to pretend they're blind, I think. So it certainly isn't something that I think guide dog teams have experienced at all. One of my pet peeves, and this is a personal thing for me, is how often disability legislation and provisions are so generic that they can be meaningless. And it interests me that a lot of people don't stand up to this and see any harm in it. And it seems to me that, and we'll go through some specifics about this in a minute to illustrate this, but these are very generic standards in an attempt to impose a set of standards on a whole bunch of people with very disparate needs and requirements from a service animal. Yeah, yes, and this approach is so counter to human rights legislation, at least the way it's developed here in Canada. Under human rights legislation, when we talk about accommodating the needs of persons with disabilities, we really advocate that in many cases what you need is an individualized approach because there are many types of disabilities and people respond differently, have different coping strategies and so on. So I totally agree with you. One of the, the I guess, greatest criticisms or or difficulties with this standard is the one-size-fits-all. Like, let's fit everybody into one mold. And we can see what happens when you do that. Uh, there's a huge problem in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the way that it impacts on uh, persons who use guide dogs and the possibility that their choice or their freedom to go to schools in the U.S. 
may be limited. So, yeah, it's it's just so wrong-headed. Most guide dog schools do not operate in the Wild West. I mean, they agree to be reviewed by the International Guide Dog Federation. And I presume that during the formulation process of this draft, the CGSB would have been made aware of that. And yet there isn't one single reference in the entire document to the IGDF. Well, I don't assume anything with with respect to these standards and the committee that developed them. I would hope certainly they should have known of them. I know that people sitting on this committee knew of them, so I would imagine they would have raised them. So why they were completely ignored is is beyond me. I mean, it's just, I, I don't understand it. That, that's all I can say. It's just ludicrous to me that they uh, didn't look around to see what other standards were in place. And there are other standards in addition to uh, IGDF, uh, you know, standards and accreditation. There are other service dog standards that are have been used in the U.S. and so on. Uh, but it seems like they just completely ignored ignored these and wanted to, I guess, reinvent their own version. Yes, I understand there is another one for what they call assistance dogs. So it mm-hmm. seems like they're mm-hmm. trying to use a sledgehammer to crack a nut here and that the main problem they have is individuals getting frustrated with waiting lists in certain sectors of of this community, uh, training their own animal and calling it a service dog when it may not necessarily adhere to appropriate standards uh, when, when there are rights and privileges accorded to service animals. So it seems to me that the appropriate action to have taken would have been to acknowledge the existing standards and say, look, if you uh, belong to, if, if you receive assistance from a school which is accredited to one of these following standards, then mm-hmm. consider yourself a legitimate service animal. If you choose to train your own animal and not have your dog subjected to vetting, if you will, by any of these organizations, then here's what you've got to do. Yes, I, I think that's the, the right. Certainly that would be a good, a good first step. I, I might just give you a little bit of background, though, on how what I understand and I may be, I may not have all the facts, but here's what I have heard uh, kind of precipitated all of this is um, Veterans Affairs, which is the department here federally in Canada that looks after a person serving in the military. And and uh, I understand that a lot of persons coming back from uh, doing, you know, being in service and on duty, uh, ex-military people came back and, and had lots of problems, including PTSD. And one of the solutions that was proposed is that service dogs might help them manage PTSD. Now, I can't comment on that. Uh, that may be a legitimate, uh, you know, opportunity. Uh, Veterans Affairs then became very concerned about the need for training and the expense associated with training. I think the number I heard was $75,000. They did not want to spend that money unless they knew that the product, if I can call it that, would be effective and and would and uh, so they were the ones I understand who approached the CGSB and asked them to set standards so that if they did provide these uh, funds for these kind this kind of training a there would be training and b it would be money well spent that's probably a legitimate request what they decide what the what the CGSB decided to do or their service dog team decided to do was just 
include everybody into this whole you know, review or standard setting process. And that's where we get into difficulty. I know very little about this, but wouldn't PTSD be more of an emotional support need rather than a service animal need? <laughs> well, good question. I, I mean, this is something I, I can say wearing my human rights hat we struggle with is what is what defines a, a service dog and what defines an emotional or therapy support dog? Uh, people will argue uh, that PTSD, of course, is a disability, or that people who have this condition, it's a, it's a legitimate disability, and that, the, that dogs are trained uh, to help the person. They do certain things. I can't speak to what they do, but apparently I'm told that they can do certain things that help uh, calm the person down or keep them from having an anxiety attack and so on. Uh, But, you know, the key is that they're trained and that they do perform certain tasks. Um, My understanding is an emotional support dog might not necessarily be trained or might not perform certain tasks. So, again, this is a... (laughs) This is a very thorny question. I, I, you know, is it even legitimate that dogs uh, who assist people with PTSD are service dogs? So that even the premise of the, the committee, I think, is questionable. I think one of the things that struck me was certainly no guide dog that I am familiar with would actually qualify currently under these proposed standards. And that is an extremely scary prospect, that effective working guide dog teams who would be accepted anywhere in the world would suddenly not be acceptable just in Canada? Well, I was speaking with an individual who served on this committee. He's a guide dog user and he's a damn good one. And he he confessed to me that he and his dog would not pass these standards. So it is... I don't think any is, guide dog in the world would pass these standards. No, I, no well, I wouldn't. I'm a guide dog user. I'm one of my six dogs. I'm pretty, I think I'm a pretty good user. But yeah, my, I don't think I would pass. You know, it's just to me, what these standards will end up doing is eliminating service dogs, not increasing opportunities for yeah. service dogs. Some are suggesting that the CGSB will contract with IGDF schools to certify guide dog teams according to the standard, but I haven't seen any reference to that in any CGSB documentation. Uh, I've inquired a little of the guide dog schools. None of the guide dog schools I've asked have had any contact with the CGSB on this. Do you know anything about that? Is that just a flight of fancy? Uh, I, I don't. I read a document. Maybe it was one you read as well that said what that what might be proposed is that yeah the CGSB would would have a contract with with various schools uh indicating you know that they that the schools met the the standards um and they would be you know accepted as certified schools the problem is even if that were true and that just seems ridiculous to me but you know schools like the one I go to the seeing eye They'll never meet those standards, and nor should they. I mean, it would be many of the standards are just not applicable to safe and efficient and successful, you know, guide dog teams. So, I I don't know. I know that they want to engage in the certification process, which is a whole other issue that really alarms me. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know what they have in mind. Uh, you know, it's just if I can go back to an earlier point, these standards are so vague in terms of rationale, in terms of, you know, where we're going and why and for whom. Um, so, yeah.
Yeah, they're vague in some areas, but extraordinarily prescriptive in others. So they don't actually talk about who's going to do the assessing, for example, but they talk at great length about what will be assessed. Um, Oh, yeah. There there seems to be, and I want to drill down a bit here so that people who haven't read the documentation can have a, a glimpse of what's going on here. There seems to be a very high bar set in the standards in terms of qualifications that a disabled person uh, must meet before being allowed a dog. First, they have to prove they have the financial means to support Mm -hmm. a dog, which could, Mm -hmm. I think, legitimize significant intrusion into a disabled person's life. Next, they must have detailed knowledge of dog first aid, which is something that as a guide dog handler, I was never taught. It seems it's actually going to be harder to get a guide dog in Canada if you're disabled than it will be to have children, unless they're going to try and legislate that uh, as well for disabled people. But it's, it's, it's extraordinary the high bar that's being set here. Yes, and that compare that 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 analogy has been made several times that you know, not even parents have to go through this this kind of a qualification process. It's a and it's a huge, I think, infringement on people's privacy. I mean, obviously you want to talk to somebody and say having a having a service dog will cost you money. You have to pay for for food and vet care and various other supplies and equipment. But to have to prove that you have the financial means and then what what is considered, you know, what's what what would would enough money be like what they haven't even said what it is you would need. But who cares? Because it's just so, I think, uh, preposterous that they would they would want um, they would want to do this. And I think, again, if I can go back to a, a, a human rights point of view, one of the things we want to see, one of the reasons we have human rights is to eliminate barriers this standard clearly sets the bar so high that it creates barriers so that persons with disabilities cannot get access uh, to, you know, um, service dogs that may help them become more independent and be able to work and participate in society. There are numerous occasions in this proposed standard which seem to make the disabled person responsible for handling bigotry or ignorance or discrimination or misguided opinions of the general public. So I want to have a look at some of these. And we'll go Mm -hmm. to 4.1.2.3, which says, and I'm going to read this out, it says, the handler shall have knowledge of the responsibilities of a service dog team. These responsibilities include laws and guidance documents that pertain to service dogs in the handler's jurisdiction, handling best practices in public, and how to negotiate situations where the rights of other members of the public may overlap with the rights of the handler and the service dog team. That concept of overlap is a very foreign one to me because surely guide dogs are simply allowed uh, in public spaces. End of story. Mm-hmm. This may be getting at situations where somebody says, uh, I have a severe allergy to dogs. And uh, so what they're suggesting, I guess what these standards are suggesting is that that person know how to negotiate uh, that situation. I mean, again, I'm trying to imagine where that would happen. Let's say it happens on an airline. And, you know, I know this, I, I think there have been situations. Well, you know, is it my responsibility to negotiate that or is it the airline uh, that has to negotiate that? And then again, what really, you know, has to be done? Maybe the person, you know, gets moved to the back of the plane or oh, I don't mind going to the back of the plane. But, 
you know, again, not only do you have to know how to work with your service dog, but you have to become a public relations manager. Clearly, we all learn, you know, skills. We develop them in terms of how to deal with the public. You want to be as informative and helpful as you as you can be. But to suggest that you must have all these different public relations skills, again, how is that going to affect somebody who uses a service dog who maybe uses that dog very well but can't, doesn't have good communication skills or isn't comfortable in that environment? There's another, there's, there's a barrier. Some people find it very daunting to speak up for themselves in those situations mm-hmm. and surely it's not unreasonable to expect a service industry to know how to accommodate uh, passengers or, or recipients with various needs. Um, mm-hmm, I don't think mm-hmm. the onus should be placed on the individual. Uh, then we go on to 5.1.1.3, and that talks about the handler's ability to handle the service dog in a manner that does not cause the public to fear for the safety of themselves, the handler, or the service dog. Well, I can tell you, I have been in many a hotel room when I have had room service. And uh, I don't know why this particular example comes to mind, but it's pretty common, particularly when I was in the United States. And I would receive room service from somebody who was petrified of a guide dog. I'm not responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, yeah. yeah. Well, it, <laughs> exactly. I mean, again, I've I've been in meetings. Uh, with people, I mean, I have to be there. I'm, I'm been asked to be the lawyer there, and I have to come in. And I, the only way I get there is with my dog, so she has to come in. And people have been very, very frightened. And again, I try, uh, you know, I do try to provide some, you know, information about the work of the dog. It's a trained dog. I don't spend a lot of time. I just do what I have to do and sit down and get on with it. Um, and. <laughs> You know, I, I agree with you. The onus is not on the individual. The onus is is on the public establishment or the, uh, you know, the, the the place where you're having the meeting. I mean, this the, the person I was meeting with was a government representative, and she knew I was coming with a dog. So, you know, uh, maybe she should have sent somebody else, or mm. she should have read up on it. But it, it, I just refused to take responsibility for it, uh, and I was certainly not going to leave my dog at home. No, it's a matter of training. It, it, going back to the room service example, you would mm-hmm. think that as part of the training, the hotel would say you may, from time to time, come across a person with a disability who is working with a service animal, and they're entitled to be mm-hmm. here, and uh, you, you've got to get to grips with that. If you find that difficult, then maybe this isn't the role for you. But, you know, imposing well, this on, on the person who has the service animal, who's just trying to do their thing, you know? <laughs> just, well, I think this gets at the, at, the, at, a, at the larger issue, and the issue that really isn't being properly addressed in this standard, and that is there is a huge concern, we are told, by the public sector that they don't know what's a legitimate service dog and what isn't. So we should be educating them, putting the onus on them, to, to learn about what service dogs do, and then on how to identify whether or not the service dog coming into their, their establishment is legitimate. If the dog comes in and, the ha- and it's being handled well, the dog is performing a task, doing what it's asked, sits under the table if you're in a restaurant, doesn't bother anybody, isn't barking, biting, being obnoxious, you probably have a service dog. And in that one small situation where somebody gets away with it, so what? I mean, it's it, you know, it's it's probably that that is probably a lesser uh, burden than it is to put this enormous burden on 
legitimate users to jump through enormous hoops just to establish themselves as legitimate. And you mentioning public relations earlier, I see the text here that I made some notes about which says that handlers are expected to be aware of the handler's role in public relations for the service dog community and how to manage interactions with the public in a positive manner. Um, You know, if I'm using a piece of technology to ameliorate my disability, if I have an iPhone, I'm not expected to be some sort of ambassador for Apple. This is just an absurd suggestion that somehow a blind person with a guide dog just trying to go about their business has got to be a PR expert in some way. Well, and you can use that analogy for wheelchairs, you know, yeah. or scooters or, you know, you know, motor, some motorized wheelchairs or some scooters, they too may be hazardous or people may be worried. I'm not going to say they're hazardous, but maybe people will be worried that they're going to be, are they safe? Are they, you know, we don't expect those persons to go around and say, look at my nice scooter, my wheelchair. It's very safe. It's very efficient. Uh, it's it's just re- really a, 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 a double standard almost in terms of uh, with respect to persons with disabilities. Now, again, there's an obsession with what the public thinks of us in this standard because it goes on to say that this, that uh, a service dog shall never display behaviour the public may interpret. And I want to stress that the public may interpret as aggression. So, again, if I go back to my room service example, uh, I go to the door, the door opens, my dog's off the leash, it bounds up to say a friendly hello. And that person who is uh, fearful of a dog may well interpret that as aggressive when it is not. But it's all about the public's perception, not the reality. Exactly. And dogs aren't machines. So occasionally they're going to behave like a dog. And maybe people misinterpret that. I know I was in the British Columbia Court of Appeal one day and uh, some students came in, and I don't know, maybe they were behaving weirdly, but my dog barked. And it was kind of a big bark, and it was rather embarrassing. But, uh, you know, she was behaving as a dog. She was startled. That is, now, would that be interpreted by the public? Especially, it was, it was students, you know, children. Would that, would that be seen as aggressive? I mean, how do we interpret those, th- those things? And we have to understand that when we work with dogs, they're not going to be perfect. God knows they, they all make mistakes, and it's up to us as handlers to mitigate those mistakes and try to you know, correct them as best we can. But I, I think this idea of saying it's up to the public to decide, um, <laughs> it just that doesn't make sense. Uh, we are the handlers. We, we know our dogs. And I don't think any one of us would bring our dog if we thought they were aggressive or going to, to, you know, really misbehave in an unsafe way, we bring them into the public. It's more likely that pet owners do that. Yes, most of us who have had guide dogs for any length of time will have had the experience where a random person will just approach you and say, your guide dog looks miserable, or your guide dog looks sad, and <laughs> your guide dog looks thin, you're not feeding it enough, or whatever, you know. And, and, and this standard seems to place a lot of uh, emphasis on what the public thinks of us, and the yes. public is not the best judge of these things. 
Yes, or, or even the public will report to you, report you to some agency because yeah. perhaps you were net trying to navigate a place that was unfamiliar and you were a little bit uncertain. Maybe an error was made, but most likely you survived and everything went well and you learned a thing or two. But boy, somebody watches you and they get really concerned, like, wow, that dog took her awfully close to that car. I don't think it's a safe dog. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it really, we have, I think we really have to emphasize that these dogs are well trained by very credible uh, training schools who know what they're doing. And, you know, it's like the school always often tells us uh, when an error is made and somebody is injured, it's not the dog that made the mistake. It's the, it's the user not following their dog. When a handler mistreats a service animal, Nothing makes my blood boil more. You know, it's a very special bond that yes. um, a handler has uh-huh. with, with their dog. Yes. And there's a lot of emphasis in the standard about how a service animal should be treated. And some of that's actually quite contentious, and we'll get to that. But I, I just wonder why animal cruelty laws aren't sufficient. Why disabled people are expected to somehow meet some higher standard of surveillance than regular animal cruelty laws provide for? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't, I, I don't know uh, how that, what, why that standard, um, you know, where that comes from. Um, you know, we, we've been speculating about what the subtexts are and who's behind mm. some of this and if it's a, some kind of animal rights. I, I haven't heard that, uh, but, you know, it feels like that sometimes. And, and yes, like here in, in Manitoba, the Humane Society would have every right if, if somebody was concerned that a dog was being mistreated, to they can send in people to investigate. And if they think something is really uh, terrible going on, they can apprehend the dog. And we're told that. When we are, you know, getting our dogs and in training that, you know, you, you're not above that law. So handlers know that. According to the standard, if you are going into a public space, your guide dog has to be unobtrusive and uh, <laughs> capable of uh, migrating hazards encountered. Um, the word unobtrusive appears no less than six times in this document. Now, I, a couple of those are in the headings, but I did a search and I found six occurrences of the word unobtrusive. Whose guide dog is ever unobtrusive? I mean, most of the time you can just be walking through a shopping mall or, or trying to get to a table at a restaurant or just doing the things you do. And it's the sighted public that come along and want to say hello to the dog or feed the dog. Or, you're not doing anything madness. to provoke this. How on earth yeah. is a guide dog expected to be unobtrusive? Where does this come from? Yeah. Well, again, I don't know. I mean, you know, in our training, uh, you know, we're we're told we're, we're taught to that that you know you don't fuss you don't fuss about the dog and you don't encourage people to fuss about the dog and the dog sits under the table or sits out of the way as much as possible but you're absolutely right i mean boy you want to meet people walk down the street or go into a store or you know go to a, a public place with a park or something with your dog and you'll meet people which is kind of nice actually but uh, but yeah I, I mean this seems so ill-informed I don't know who drafted. I would love to know who drafted these standards because they they really 
they really show just a blatant mis you know disregard or lack of understanding about particularly guide dog work. I can't speak for other service dogs, but it just seems so ill conceived. It seems to make the assumption that unobtrusiveness is a good thing. I actually think a lot of members of the public love watching a blind person <laughs> and their guide dog working. You know, it makes them feel good, and it should. It's a very special bond, isn't it? So I don't know if the public <laughs> always wants us to be unobtrusive. Well, I never thought of it that way, but that's… Yeah. Could you talk to me a bit about the concept of undue hardship in the Canadian legal context? This is obviously some sort of principle of Canadian yeah. law that's unique to to Canada, and apparently that is an out, is it, that, that a, a guide dog handler may not have their dog accommodated if it would cause a business undue hardship to do so? Yes, yeah, so here in Canada… Um, uh, if so we, we a person has a, a right to be accommodated and that would be that would include their service dog or their guide dog uh unless unless um it would create an undue hardship it's hard to imagine what that undue hardship would be um i mean some of the examples that they give uh i think they say a meat plant or a kitchen even in those circumstances, depending on the situation and what was going on, that per- a person still could be accommodated. Uh, the, the standard itself, what, what bothers me is it, 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 it assumes that the handler should know what's an undue hardship. That's not how human rights works in Canada. Um, in Canada, hard, undue hardship has to be proven by the person claiming that it's an undue hardship. Mm, so the the it's the exception rather than the rule, and the person who is the, the the victim, if you will, of undue hardship has to prove it beyond beyond doubt, right? Yes. Uh, so the person who is claiming undue hardship, it has to prove. What's key here is the undueness, mm. and and it isn't it isn't just you know um, a minor inconvenience um, or preference. It ha- you have to show uh, based on objective evidence that the that there would be an undue hardship. In other words, that there would be an enormous safety risk, um, or there would be some some very um, well established, well documented health health re- you know risk. So it's it is a very high standard that would have to be met. And in terms of of service animals, I. I I just I haven't heard of when that would when that has been applied. References made to obedience training throughout the standard that I think would be difficult for a blind person to enforce mm-hmm. because the dog is expected to respond uh, off leash and you've got to monitor that. In my experience, many guide dogs actually behave completely different when they're out of harness. It's like somebody's flipped a switch and they're they're a pet while they're while they're out of harness and 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 a Guide dog handler is not going to take their dog out of harness and certainly off leash unless they're in a very familiar environment, their own house or somebody's house that they go to quite a bit. So there's a very high bar there set with obedience. Again, I think if I remember right, there might have been a reference to sitting for five minutes. 
in, yes, in, yeah, that, I mean, that's right. and so so what I did last night is it, it, purely in the interest of research. You understand, I got Bonnie's guide dog, uh, and I uh, I said to her sit, and then I got my stopwatch out, and um, she sat for I think it was one minute and thirty two seconds, and then she got tired of sitting and she bounded away, and so I told her she has just disqualified herself from ever visiting Canada. <laughs> I would love them to visit Canada. But yes, again, totally unreasonable, totally unrelated, totally unnecessary. Because you're right, we, you know, we do obedience with uh, using the leash. And I think even this has to be done with some distractions in the room. I mean, again, how is that related to good, effective, uh, safe guide dog work? If it's not related, it's why is it needed? Now, what is it proving? of course, we have section 5.2.3.2, which says that the service dog shall not urinate or defecate in inappropriate <laughs> locations, such as private property or in uh, uh, non-indicated areas. Now, obviously, we've all unfortunately had incidents like this when we're guide dog handlers. Uh, I had a meeting with a politician many years ago now who was uh, quite difficult to work with and my guide dog chose that particular moment to um, have a little bit of an upset tummy and there was sort of a bit of karma in that. But I mean, it's ve- we feel bad about it. The dog undoubtedly feels bad about it because they, they know what they're trained to do. Look, accidents happen, don't they? And, and essentially what it's saying is if the dog does this, then it's... Um, it, it's not a not a service animal. That's a, that's a, it's an absurd thing to say. Well, it, it's a, again back to this idea of not understanding that dogs aren't machines, uh, and they you know things happen. And yeah, I mean it's 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 so unreasonable. Um, and none of us, I don't know of anybody who's ever you know could ever pass that when we've all had our moments. And Look, humans to have it. too. I was actually with a guide dog handler not so long ago with an upset tummy who unfortunately had a wee accident in a, in a taxi. So, I mean, you know, even humans sometimes can't help sure. themselves when they're very unwell. Uh, yes. Yeah. yes, yes, of course. Uh, and, oh, Again, this- I ask. Who drafted this standard and what were they thinking? Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about um, – corrections because i wonder whether there's some evolving thinking on this that maybe some guide dog schools are not keeping up with or whether they are in fact keeping up but this standard would prohibit issuing a harsh command or reprimand to the dog now you know i i have been told off by members of the public uh, for giving a guide dog a what i consider a pretty minor leash correction when when the dog has been incredibly distracted by something, like a cat uh, mm-hmm. on the other side of the street, it later turns mm-hmm. out, or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, I've been I've been reprimanded by a member of the public for being cruel to the dog just for doing a gentle touch on the leash and saying, leave it. Uh, not only could you not do a leash correction under the standard, even telling the dog off, you know, giving it a, a, a verbal mm-hmm. chastisement would be not in keeping with the standard. Mm-hmm. I don't know where this comes from. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on training. I just know what I need to know. Um, I think it's really a, a huge misunderstanding and it's being reflected in these standards that somehow this is being cruel to the dog. As, as probably you know and guide dog users know, a gentle tug on the leash on the neck of a dog is not harmful to them. It doesn't hurt them. It helps them refocus and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're all, you know, they have a very strong neck. And I don't know that any of us really yank on our dogs to the point where they would be harmed. But it is a way of 
getting back their attention and getting them focused on their work. Um, so, I, I, again, I, I don't know. I don't know where this comes from, and I, I don't know that. I mean, certainly the school I go to, they teach you, um, you know, a hierarchy of, of reprimand, and you start with gentle and. You go up the ladder if you need to, and often you don't. If you have a good dog and you're well-trained and a good handler, you don't. But we've all been in situations where you have no choice for your safety and to get the dog back on work mode, you might have to do that. But then there are people who are overzealous with it, aren't there? I imagine. I don't I imagine. I don't know. No. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So then there's the whole question of identification. So if by chance you were able to meet this pretty detailed standard, you would somehow be certified as having met the standard. And it looks like that would comprise an ID card and possibly some sort of insignia of some kind on the dog or the harness or or something like that that's very visible. Now, my reading of this was that at least on the ID card and possibly on some of that insignia, it might display your name as the handler mm-hmm. plus the name mm-hmm. of the dog. Now, that is a disaster in my opinion. The one thing you sometimes have to be very careful about is giving your dog's name to members of the general public because then they start to use it and that causes immense dog distraction. Not to mention mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the fact that you're a person with this disability just trying to get on with life. Why should they have to know your name? Well, I, I think it's a, it, to me it makes me feel it would make me feel very vulnerable and and would really as a woman, right? Un- yes, as a yeah, woman, yeah. I would feel very unsafe. First of all, and as a blind person, just turning over some kind of photo ID with all that information, I don't know who I'm. I I don't know who's looking at it. They may tell me they run. A business, but how do I know? They're not giving me their ID. Uh, I would not be comfortable. I tell you personally, I will never do that. I agree with you. Uh, when people ask me my dog's name, I make up wild names. Yes, just yeah. because it, it amuses me, and also I don't believe in giving out my dog's name to to strangers. But even more to the point, I I just think this whole idea of being forced to carry. Uh, some kind of identification that can be sh- that you have to show every you know possibly every step of the way any public establishment you go into you're being carded so to speak that kind of behavior that kind of practice has been deemed discriminatory with respect to other circumstances where you know in terms of of race or other groups of people that we thought needed to be managed and I don't agree with that I think it's a real violation of human rights. And, you know, if that ever came to be, I would certainly be looking at how we can challenge that uh, constitutionally or under human rights law. I just don't think it's a valid thing. I think I've covered about half the the notes I made. But but I I think that uh, what we should encourage people to do is take a look at this. You know, it's, it's a publicly available document. And unfortunately, time is short in terms of responding. Where will this go from here? So submissions close on Friday, the 14th of July. And then what happens? They, so what happens on, as I understand it, I ask the question, it goes to a technical review committee who ends up being the very same committee that developed these standards. So what they're going to do, I guess, and there's been a lot of controversy over how to submit these, you know, how to make our submissions. At one point, we were told if we don't put all of our comments on a 
comment form, which was hard for some blind people, uh, they wouldn't be accepted. I think we've battled that one, and they will now accept Word documents. But if the comments aren't specific, if they're just general, they may be disregarded. So anyway, that's just an aside. Uh, so hopefully they will consider all of these comments. I don't know what they're going to do with them. That's a question that we need to ask. Um, so it's it's uncertain and it's a bit it's frightening to me because you know can they just ignore us or I mean one what the chair or whoever she is the secretary told somebody that it was a ninety nine percent chance don't quote me on this but here's what I, here's what she told me that they these uh, standards would be accepted I actually think now that there's such a huge pushback that they're going to have to think about what people are saying. But I just wonder, Jonathan, if I could just make one more comment about the standards themselves, um, if you don't mind. Of and course, that is, yeah. yeah, sections eight and nine, and we've sort of been talking around this, but I want to be really clear for people uh, who haven't read the standards. There's, there are two sections in the standard. One is called inspection and one is called assessment. So what this means, as I read it and understand it, is I can go to a school that has been accredited by IGDF that follows all appropriate training standards, that has assessed me as a user, that has has trained the dog, that we've been assessed as a safe team. Uh, we go back home to Canada, and then it looks like we would be subjected to a, a yet another layer where some third party would come in that I don't know and would would. Inspe- would I would have to demonstrate a whole detailed variety of things, including my financial ability, all the things we've already talked about. But it's going to be some third person is going to come into my home, look at where my dog really, you know, where the relief area, uh, how, what my vet, where my vet records are, what they look like, what they say, um, what safety knowledge, what first aid knowledge I have, how she, how I play with my dog, how my dog plays. And on and on it goes. So we go through this third-party inspection of me, the handler, and then there's the testing of the dog. Remember, this dog has already gone through, um, you know, the process of being selected by the training school, trained, evaluated, monitored, and yet we have some third person who can come in, who is going to come in and test the dog for suitability. And just as an example, I mean, it's many of the things we've already talked about would be assessed in terms of being able to, you know, do obedience off leash. But one of the things that alarmed me is they say you, if you're, you, you, you know, you may be walking in a public area and a third person unknown to the dog can come up, grab the dog's leash and walk away with the dog to assess its, uh, you know, temperament and whether or not it would act aggressively and so on. Well, so I, my point is, this is, as you started out by saying, so paternalistic, so heavy-handed, and so assuming that people with disabilities, you know, need governing and managing and can't make independent decisions. So that's what, for me, is most alarming about these these standards is is this idea that somebody can come in and tell you, you know, put you under surveillance and tell you whether or not you're appropriate. So you could graduate from any number of U.S. guide dog schools and take your dog back and you're, you're getting ready to start mm-hmm. life as a guide dog team and then some, mm-hmm. uh, at the moment, unknown entity 
could say, mm-hmm. hey, no, you know, you've got a dog that's accredited from the International Guide Dog Federation. Uh, mm-hmm. You've you've graduated, but as far as we're concerned, this is not a service dog, and you have no rights. If we say, if if we go to the next step that says, okay, if you want to be able to get around and be a, recognized as a legitimate service dog team, and you want to be certified, which seems to be coming, then you you may, as I read the standards. It looks like what you would have to do is go through an inspection as a handler and an assessment, a testing, I guess they call it, testing of the guide dog. Mm, And again, that takes us back to this argument that has been advanced that I can find no evidence for anywhere that somehow the CGSB will contract or or, or government entities will contract with American or Canadian guide dog schools to do this. But that seems to be a supposition. If 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 it was talked about in those meetings, it's not written down anywhere that I can find. I don't see it either. That's what that's what I think very concerning is who would be doing this? You know, would they accept that, that that schools would do it, or I mean, they talk about it being a third-party entity unknown to handler and dog, as I recall. I may be misreading that, but that's how I read it. So, it you know, it makes me wonder when I get into my little conspiracy theories: is you know, is there somebody out there who really wants to set up a business that's going to go around and certify everybody? Right. Um, but yeah. anyway, that's just my own assessment. Yeah. So, so, so by by virtue of the wording and the standard, and you're right. I remember reading that now. So, it, it would be impossible then for the dog, for the school that you graduated from to do this because the standard expressly prohibits that. Yes. There's, se- and, there's separation and, and, between the trainer and the assessor. So, you know, unless they set up yes, some sort of different division, and that would be acceptable, I suppose. Yes, but but and then you know the problem is so that so if you have to go through this process when you come back to say from Canada from the U.S., well the seeing eye has said we don't we will not be able to meet all those standards. So you wouldn't pass the inspection or the dog testing perhaps, uh, and and the school would be reluctant perhaps to give to provide service uh, to Canadians because they know that when they come back they may not meet the certification process. So why would you then waste your time providing service to Canadians? Yeah, because that could be humane and inhumane in itself, right? Because what what happens is that the dog then establishes a bond with the handler and then presumably if the dog isn't certified in Canada, the dog has to go back. Or, Or the person keeps, I mean, seeing eye allows you to make your own decision about your dog, but... You know, you can keep it, but that's a waste of resources. It's a big right? investment gone down uh, the drain, right? On on their part. Well, and 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 you know, if you, I don't want to get too carried away because you can really get carried away. But you do have to think realistically about this. I know that Seeing Eye has a huge list of people. I see it on the, uh, the email, you know, on the listserv I'm on all the time. People waiting, 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 wanting to get in. Well, they're going to just turn around and say, you know, we'll just serve Americans because we know they have a need and it's accepted and if Canadian if it's so difficult in Canada to be certified uh well we'll just say that's maybe not the best use of our resources and I have to say given this time uh, you know the way things are these days I never thought it would be Canada that would uh close the door to going to the US uh for me I thought you know you never know what goes on it's a, the you know they invite us in and allow us in at the US but in the US but you know, I'm glad they do, but I, I 
they, I understand that if they have to serve their own people, then they could close the door on us. But I never thought it would be Canada that would close that door. Do you have a feel for how long this next part of the process will take? Presumably once this uh, submission process ends, they will consider submissions. And then is there any more pos- prospect of consultation or will this, the next version that comes out will be the final potential standard? I don't know. Yeah. I, I really, I really hope that if <clears throat> They, you know, they get a lot of pushback that they'll realize if they really want to do this, they're going to have, have to have a lot more consultation. And let me tell you, we're not just writing submissions uh, to the CGSB. Uh, we're lobbying our, our members of parliament. We're lobbying our members of the legislature. Uh, we're, we're writing to you know, everybody we can think of because I think this has caught a lot of people off guard. You know, here in Canada, we're working on legislation to enhance access at the federal level. So we're certainly getting that minister involved to say, this is so, you know, opposite to what you're trying to do. Are you aware? So I'm really hoping that through, um, you know, consumer pushback and uh, political lobbying that that this this board, which I think... I think they're completely caught unaware. I think they just thought, what a nice thing to do. And suddenly they realize they're in the middle of a real boiling pot. And yeah, maybe they don't, maybe they'll just, I don't know. I wish they would just stop doing it. I, I don't know what they'll do. I don't know. But maybe the controversy will make them think twice. I certainly hope so. If they come back and they say, look, any dog that has come from a school that is accredited by the International Guide Dog Federation is automatically considered a service dog. Would that be acceptable to you? I have. I would answer that in two ways. Personally, yes. Um, from a human rights point of view, I would still be concerned because I, I, I don't think that these standards. I, I want standards that are not going to create additional barriers. So if these if these standards exist and still create additional barriers for people who legitimately need service dogs who cannot meet these standards but still could work effectively with a service dog, I I would still be very deeply concerned. And you know, I I I, I think should they persist with these kinds of standards, I would want to explore you know, with different people, the possibility of some kind of legal challenge to, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, very, very broad, but yet very oppressive and, you know, um, detailed kinds of standards that would limit people's uh, opportunity to work with a service dog. I presume you do have the mechanism of judicial review in Canada? Uh, Yes, yes. uh, I think you could ask for the courts to to do like a constitutional review. I hadn't thought of it quite that way. Uh, you could also just challenge it as being unconstitutional and a contravention of uh, equality rights in terms of uh, limiting rights or limiting opportunities for persons with disabilities. I think that's the route at this point I would, would recommend. But again, this would take careful you know, legal strategizing and thought about what way to proceed. I guess my bottom line, what I'm saying is, I I certainly think that if they persist, if these standards persist in the draft that they are, uh, I would certainly want to explore the possibility of a legal challenge. Canada has also ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Disabled Persons, has it not? 
certainly have, yes. Yeah, so and the UN might our, be an option. Well, um, especially because uh, the minister who has the disability portfolio um, has agreed to the optional protocol, and it's the optional protocol that gives countries uh, the opportunity to go to the UN and make a complaint. So once that optional protocol is ratified by Canada, and if nothing is done here, now there's some legal hoops you have to jump through. You have to show that you know you've used every legal avenue in in your own country to try to rectify the situation, and it hasn't worked. So it might be a last resort uh, possibility, but it's it would certainly be in the uh, basket of of, uh, of legal strategies. Ivan, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, and we will watch this with considerable interest as it unfolds. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jonathan. It's a, it really is um, makes me feel really, uh, really, I guess, help positive that somebody is interested and and is spreading the word internationally. That is exactly what we have to do. So thank you so much. Feel the need to sound off. Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. Joining me for a provider's perspective on this now is Jim Kutch, who is CEO of Seeing Eye. It's good to have you back, Jim. Thank you, Jonathan. Glad to be here. Now, as we begin this discussion, I'm mindful of the fact that there could be some sensitivity about talking to an American school about what is an essentially Canadian issue. So I want to begin by just emphasizing that I I thought it would be good to get your views on this because the Seeing Eye has been providing guide dogs to Canadians for a very long time, right? You've been around since 1929, and I don't think it was too long before you were serving Canadians. That's true. We have uh, we were founded in January of 1929, and within our first few years, we began serving uh, blind individuals from all over the United States and all over Canada, uh, long before there were any guide dog schools in Canada itself even. So let me cut to the chase then right at the beginning and say, if these standards were to be enacted, would you be able to continue to provide service to Canadians? We would continue to provide service. The question is, would the individual, the Canadian individual, be able to go home and successfully pass all of what is proposed in the standards? It appears that there needs to be a test where the individual and the dog, after they return home, have to go under this evaluation. Uh, So, the training program would continue, of course, but whether an individual team succeeded or didn't succeed in, in passing that that test or that certification, whatever you want to call it, is up, of course, to the individual and the individual, uh, the individual dog. Some changes would have to be made, and I think there are several things in the proposed standards that would be problematic. Uh, for example, one of the things in there says that the handler has to make sure that the dog is not in any unsafe circumstances or situations, that it's not in an area where there's broken glass was one of the quotes in the in the standards. Well, honestly, that's the reason why I have and many of us have guide dogs or seeing eye dogs in the first place. It's to help us safely navigate unsafe situations. I I don't know if there's glass on the sidewalk in front of me, but my dog is trained to do that. So if if I'm being held accountable to make sure that I never take my dog in an unsafe environment, I don't know that I can do that as a blind person. 
So I, I think some of the things that are being stated in here are just very unrealistic and don't show a, uh, an in-depth understanding of the way guide dogs are trained and the functions that guide dogs provide for their blind uh, handlers. Even though the standard is very prescriptive in parts, in others it's just not saying anything at all that's helpful. For example, there's no real clarity on who precisely will do this assessing. And there is a supposition or a belief on the part of some people in Canada that actually organisations like yours would enter into a contract so that you could certify graduates before they went home. Is this something that you've had any communication about? I can't comment on that because uh, I've, that's the first time I've heard that. So I wouldn't be surprised that it would be subcontracted, or so to speak, to somebody. But no discussions have been taking place so far with the seeing eye as possibly being engaged in that. If somebody visits Canada with a dog that has achieved those standards that have been agreed upon through the International Guide Dog Federation... Presumably there's a possibility that that guide dog may not be recognized in Canada as a guide dog, as a legitimate service animal. You raise a good point. The whole question of how does this proposed set of guidelines and maybe standards, if it moves to the point, if it progresses to the point of becoming standards rather than guidelines, how will these guidelines uh, be applied to tourists? Um, what's what's the understanding? Um, I, I liken it a little bit to driver's licenses. A person from another country can come in with a driver's license from their home country and drive an automobile in Canada. Well, it's not clear in this document if I can come in and use my guide dog, or do I have to be recertified once I cross the border or once I get off the airplane? Uh, and then it becomes questions of, of, again, this is very prescriptive as far as training techniques, as far as handling techniques, even down to some equipment uh, with specifics about what equipment can and can't be used by the handler or worn by the dog. So I, it's very unclear to me as uh, a person not from the country, and I want to say that to start with, I, I don't live or work in Canada, but I have enjoyed visiting there quite a bit. I, I don't know what it would mean to me as a blind person coming to visit. Why do you think it is that the International Guide Dog Federation just wasn't accepted as, a, uh, as, a, as an organization that really has been somewhat self-policing over the last, gosh, I don't know how long it's been around, but I remember when I was the chair of the Blindness Agency here in New Zealand, we would receive a rigorous inspection from somebody from overseas who would come and do that, and that's all part of uh, remaining accredited with the International Guide Dog Federation. It's it's curious to me that given this long history, and I'm not really aware of a wide range of complaints about IGDF members providing dogs, why they were just not accepted as legitimate service animals under the standard in the first place. Uh, again, you raise a good question that I don't have an answer for. I can say that I just finished uh, in the summer of last summer, summer of 2016, I just finished a term on the International Guide Dog Federation board, and I ended my term having been chair of the board for some time. And before I left the office as chair of the IGDF, I did provide to the Standards Bureau a full list of the IGDF standards for their consideration as they were then 
beginning the process to think about uh, some sort of guidelines or potential regulations. So I can tell you that for well over a year, they have had a copy of the standards. And certainly at that time, we encouraged them to use this. Uh, clearly, they're, they're specific only to guide dog users. The IGDF has no comment and, and no expertise in dogs for other disabilities or other service dogs in general. And clearly, uh, what's trying to be done here is to create a document uh, or a set of guidelines that would apply to all service animals. Uh, again, going back to something I said earlier, I think that's very, very difficult to include guide dogs. Uh, I've always said that there's a very fundamental difference between training a dog to lead a blind person and training a dog for any other purpose, including other disabilities. In all other cases, the dog is trained to receive a command or a direction from the handler and to obey that command. In the case of a guide dog, it's not command and obey in a precise sense. The dog is actually taught by all the accredited programs to do problem solving. I, I give the dog a minimal amount of direction, but the dog does the problem solving. If there's an obstacle in the way, it's the dog's decision to pass that obstacle by going to the left, perhaps up into a yard, or perhaps going to the right, perhaps stepping into the street for a little while and then getting back up on the sidewalk. Uh, in the case of other dogs, the, the handler is directing them, go right or go left. In the case of the guide dog, the guide dog is problem solving. And that involves a lot of differences in training. It's why guide dog training programs spend many, many more months training dogs. Uh, the training period is longer and the training period with the, with the person because what? of this, this idea of the dog problem solving. What does the International Guide Dog Federation do if it finds a problem with one of the practices of one of its guide dog school members? I mean, has a, has a member ever been struck off or, or some sort of uh, remedial action taken because things have been a cause of concern? I, I can't speak to the anyone being struck off or removed from the, from the Federation, but I can speak to remedial action. And the answer is all, all of the accredited programs must sit for a complete reaccreditation every five years. So our program here at the Seeing Eye, every five years, uh, we submit a, a, a large reaccreditation package, paperwork in advance, and then an assessor comes and evaluates all aspects of our program, and that's a multi-day assessment. Then the assessor goes back, writes a report. The IGDF has a group called the Accreditation Committee, and they review the findings of, of the assessor and make a recommendation to the board of the IGDF, and then ultimately the board uh, confirms accreditation, or in, in that case, reaccreditation for another five years. Now, that is a self-regulatory body. Is that a fair statement? So although we've been talking about standards that are applied by the International Guide Dog Federation, my understanding is that the word standard actually has quite a specific technical term and we get to organisations like this Canadian General Standards Board that this is not what you would call an ISO standard or anything like that that the IGDF adheres to. You're correct. It's, it's, there has been discussion of ISO standards, but it is currently not an ISO standard. Uh, so there are standards at different, at different levels. With 
respect to your comment that it's a self-governing body, it, it is in the sense that the Guide Dog Federation is made up of guide dog schools. However, there are a lot of checks and balances in the system. For example, going back to the accreditation process, uh, the assessor may not be from the same country of the school being accredited. So here in the United States, anybody who assesses a United States school has to come themselves from a non-United States country. Is it time, do you think, for the ISO route to be pursued? Because clearly there is a little bit of a head of steam in Canada among the disability community in some sections of it anyway that says, well, we could be onto something here. We could have an ISO standard emerging here for all service dogs around the world, for those countries that wish to adopt the ISO standard. And it, it seems to me that to protect guide dogs as we know them uh, maybe moving down the ISO route for guide dogs specifically might be a way to deal with it in a constructive manner. There, there are pros and cons. Uh, on the surface, that might sound like a, a really good idea. Uh, on the negative side, to do anything truly international takes in a lot more considerations. Uh, when you look at ISO, you look at things like electrical systems or plumbing systems and um, it, it does not involve the, the human interaction. Uh, so I, I, I'm not aware of any ISO standards for, uh, for medical doctors uh, specific for practice. I mean, sure, there are for drugs and things like that. So once you start bringing the international aspect in and different cultures and different beliefs about dogs and the, the relationship between people and dogs, uh, you have a lot of cultural complexity as you get across all the countries. And so um, the, the IGDF standards are viewed as a minimum set of standards to which all accredited schools must, uh, must uh, adhere or, and are encouraged to surpass those standards, to do more than those standards as appropriate for their individual part of the world, their individual country. So as, as part of that accreditation review, the school does not just get a report that says, fine, you pass. The school gets a report that says, sure, you, you meet the minimum standards, but here are some additional areas where you could develop even further to, to exceed, not just meet, but meet and exceed the standards. I do want to ask you before you go about correction, because I noticed a theme running through this proposed standard, which was very much against the idea of giving a guide dog or, or service animal any kind of correction. I presume that means a leash correction. It also extends to any kind of harsh rebuke or harsh remark. And that is not how, as a guide dog handler, I was trained. Uh, I know that you use correction, leash correction sparingly, but it is a tool in the toolbox in certain situations. Is the attitude towards correction changing, or have the designers of the standard missed the mark here? The feelings towards correction on the part of the general public uh, and again, I can't speak specifically to Canada because I don't live there, but I can speak uh, just in general that uh, the views on correction tend to be uh, changing over the years. Look at the number of parents who are saying you, you can't ever do any sort of punishment to a child, a human child. So that's 
where some of this is based, there is, a, I liked your expression, toolbox. There are lots of tools in the toolbox, and uh, there, are, there are some circumstances, not very many, but some circumstances where it's absolutely necessary to get the dog's attention and to make the dog understand that, that what they did was a serious mistake, a serious error, perhaps a dangerous or even life-threatening mistake for, for the human. Positive treatment, positive, excuse me, positive uh, training is, is very important. We've been doing that here at the Seeing Eye for uh, almost 20 years now. And using treats and using clickers has its place in the toolbox again. And not every, not everything requires a hammer. Not everything requires a screwdriver. And similarly, not everything can be easily done with, with just positive, uh, positive training techniques. So it's all part of that mix of, of what's going on in the relationship between the person and the dog. Certainly, the IGDF standards, starting with them again, is, is very, very clear that nothing is supposed to put the dog in, in uh, harshness or pain. But um, a, a, a scolding, a verbal scolding is sometimes necessary and occasionally a little tug on the leash to get the dog's attention if, if the dog is too busy looking at the cat across the street or something else and you're, you know, you're about to, to get injured. You're not alone on this. It seems that there's a consensus among guide dog schools in the United States who are providing service to Canadians. And I suppose that all that all of you can do at this point is to encourage uh, Canadians to submit and sort this issue out internally and, and perhaps just make people aware of the potential ramifications that guide dog schools might have in, in serving people who need to adhere to those standards. I, I think you're right. I, I think this is not, in a large respect, a seeing eye issue or the issue for any other specific school uh, outside of Canada, uh, but it is definitely an issue for uh, a blind person in Canada who has now or is contemplating getting a guide dog in the future. And it also becomes an issue for uh, blind individuals from all around the world who either do need to go to Canada for business or pleasure or might think they would in the future. Uh, and I, I would certainly agree with you and I would encourage uh, any blind individual in any of those categories to uh, make their thoughts known and to write the comment period un uh, ends pretty soon here in the middle of July. All right. I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us and we'll obviously all be watching uh, the next phase of this process with considerable interest, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. And thank you, Jonathan, for the chance to talk. And if you feel inclined to make a submission on these proposed standards, then you can do so until Friday the 14th of July. In the show notes for the podcast, we have provided a link to the document so you can read it for yourself. And we've also got a link there to the comment form that you can complete if you want to have your say. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.